Well, welcome again to Grace Community Church. Um, like I, I kind of started out, you know, Easter is not just a day, uh, it's a season um, because Easter matters for all of life and not just one day a year and not just metaphorically in some woo-woo spiritual sense, um, but for all of life, for the nitty-gritty. We believe here at Grace that Jesus was in fact dead and gone, but then three days later, he really truly came back in the flesh. As Patrick reminded us last week, we have been given a love that is incorruptible because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And this fact that Jesus came back from the dead, it actually turned the world, flipped the world on its head. Uh, if you're wanting to do a deep dive uh, into the sort of historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to recommend to you a, a, a small book. It's just 800 pages um, <laughs> named The Resurrection of the Son of God uh, by an Oxford New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. Um, no, I haven't read it all. I've read actually some good chunks of it in seminary. I remember about this much of it. Um, but what I did read really helped me understand that uh, the resurrection, as Christians believe it to be, that it was a true uh, bodily resurrection, is actually the, the um, argument or the scenario that makes the most sense of all the historical data that we have for the resurrection. So he takes 800 pages to show that this wasn't, in fact, this was not, in fact, a hoax, as many people b believe today. It wasn't just a ruse, but it was real and true. Um, and if you want the light version of that uh, tome, uh, there's a measly 300 pages of Surprised by Hope um, by him. I think I have a picture of those books up there. And if that's uh, too long, there's a five-page article uh, that I put on the, in the sermon resources for you to check out. Um, but again, it kind of summarizes it all for you. Um, but it really does show uh, the historical nature of the resurrection from the alternate theories out there. And there are many. Um, but I just want to just throw that out. If, if you want to talk about those things, those big questions about the resurrection, I would be glad to meet up with you. Uh, I know Patrick would too. Just please reach out, email me. We would love to talk about that. Um, but this sermon is not so much about that question. Is it historically accurate? Is it historically true that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, this sermon is about another important question. And that is, what difference does Easter make in our life? Why does it matter for us in 2023 that Jesus rose? So I am assuming as a Christian, as a pastor, that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. So we're not tackling the historical question today. We're tack tackling more the existential question. What does it matter that Jesus got up from the dead? Um, I want to talk about it in four simple, simple movements. Jesus, the, the risen Jesus, gives us four things, four things as a result of Easter. And those four things are this, that he gives us his real presence. He gives us a real understanding. He gives us a real mission. And he gives us a real power. So he gives us presence, understanding, mission, and power, all of them real and all of them from the real and resurrected King Jesus. So with that, I wonder if you might stand, uh, if you're able to, 
uh, for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he, said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you gave us your word, the word about your son who died for sinners like us and who rose victorious over our sin and over death itself. Come, Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, come and meet with us today. Come and wake us up if we're asleep to you today. Come and unstop ears that are deaf to your word today. Come and open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, the beauty of Christ. Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. So come and meet with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Easter matters because Jesus gives us first his real presence, his real presence. And verse 36 opens, as they were talking about these things. And you heard Irene uh, read it a little bit earlier, but what were those things, right? It was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, Good Friday, Silent Saturday where he's in the grave, and Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. These were the things that Cleopas and his unnamed traveler, I like to think it's his wife, were walking from Emmaus. They were walking on the road to Emmaus, which is about eight miles from Jerusalem. So these two were walking. They were discussing the things that had happened on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Jesus shows up, and they don't recognize him, and they're saying, you, wait, are you the only one in Jerusalem that didn't hear about what happened to Jesus? And so they start to share, and he said, he, he essentially teaches them. He has this epic Bible study, and he shows them that all the Bible was pointing to these events, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All the Bible was leading up to Jesus' um, death and resurrection. And then they recognize him, and then he's gone. Right? And then they start heading back to this upper room. Many scholars think it's the same upper room 
that, they had, that he had on Thursday instituted the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Many scholars think it's the same upper room that they're in, and this time the doors are bolted shut, locked from the inside. They're terrified because even though Mary Magdalene and some of the women and, and now these, these two folks and Peter had all corroborated this amazing story, but, but certainly crazy story that Jesus had come back from the dead. And so they had locked the doors, they had shuttered the windows, and this is the scene that Jesus comes into the room and says, peace be with you, peace be with you. So imagine the fear. And he spends some time with them. He shows them his hands and his feet. And he says, look, I'm as real as you and me. I'm as real as I was just a few days ago. I am here. I'm not a ghost as you fear. I'm alive. Do you guys remember uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense? Remember when that came out? Everybody's mind was blown, right? Uh, mine was. I was. I'm kind of a, a wimp when it comes to uh, watching scary movies. So that was like one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, I'll be honest. You can make fun of me. That's cool. But you remember uh, this twist is pr- arguably the greatest twist in movie history besides The Empire Strikes Back. Come on. I'm your father. Come on, guys. That's, that's the greatest twist in movie history. We all know that. But this is second best, right? The whole time, spoiler alert, it's been like 25 years, y'all, so it's okay. The whole time, Bruce Willis is dead. The whole time. He's like a ghost. And I didn't see it coming anyway. I was like in, I don't know, seventh grade maybe, and about to pee my pants. Um, okay, TMI, TMI. Um, so why does Jesus show these terrified people, his, his scarred hands and his feet, why does he do that? Certainly it was to prove that he wasn't a ghost, that he was real, that you could touch him like you could touch anyone else. The embodied Christ back from the dead. But I don't, I'm not so sure it's just that. Perhaps it's more than just that. You see, the disciples had just been through the trauma of seeing their friend their master, their teacher, the one they had hoped would be the Messiah. They saw him brutally beaten, tortured, and killed, and then buried in a sealed tomb. Imagine the trauma that they were all experiencing of going through something like that. The fear in the room was palpable. Now, extensive uh, psychological research has been shown um, that trauma affects the whole body, the whole person. In The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk says this, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in an attempt to control these processes, They often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and a numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They they learn to hide from their selves. Now maybe that's a little of what's been going on in these men and women who had been following Jesus and who had feared that he was dead and they had no idea what to do next. 
They were hiding. They were numb. They were scared to death. You see, Easter makes a real difference when the real Jesus shows up, when and only when he shows up in the room. When he shows up into those most uncomfortable, most horrific places, it makes all the difference. He shows these traumatized people his resurrected body. He shows them his scars, the marks of his suffering. And that was a balm to hurting and traumatized people. I kept the scars. I kept the scars. There is hope for scarred people like us. There is hope for traumatized people like you. This is, what, this is one of the things that matters so much about Easter. Our uh, youth group was present for our renewal night on Wednesday night, and it was awesome. They uh, brought the energy level up from like two to like 150. It was awesome. Um, there was so much joy. There was, it was just amazing. And there that night, one of the things we did is we, we sang, and we also took some time just to pray out loud, just whatever was on our hearts. And, and one of our elders um, uh, prayed this um, that night, and it really stuck with me. Um, Brad said, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping your scars. And that just sunk into my heart. I think we need to thank him. These first disciples certainly did for keeping the scars. Yes, his body was made new. Yes, he could break the laws of physics. He could show up behind locked doors. Yes, he was new, but he was the, the same person. Kept the scars. His new body showed that there is indeed hope, indestructible hope, as Esau Macaulay reminded us, for numb and scared people like us. And maybe that's you. However, the elephant in this room is that the risen Jesus isn't showing up here. He isn't coming in the flesh to our room or to your room. Friends, this is why Easter matters so much. Because at Easter, we are reminded of the mission that he's given to us, to become the church. As Paul says, we are his body. Do you realize that we, with our scars, we carry his presence wherever we go? And what if there's locked doors people that are hiding in your life, in your relational circles that need you to come and say, there is hope. I get it. Or maybe I don't, but I'm here and I love you and I have my own story. And let me tell you how Jesus has transformed my life. Do you realize this is part of the hope of Easter, that he has made us his body. He has made us his people to go into the places for him on his behalf to be his hands and his feet with scars and all. This is part of the hope of Easter. But there's another reason we need an embodied, resurrected Jesus who has ascended, by the way. Where's Jesus? He's on the throne. He is ruling and reigning from heaven as we speak. That's why he's not in this room. 
That's why he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He told us he would ascend to heaven, and one day he would return. But in the meantime, I'm going to send my spirit, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. I'm going to send my spirit to make you my people, my scarred hands and feet for those who need my presence through you. We, his church, carry that. But what else? What if it means that there's hope in the dead-end circumstances in which you are living right now? What if it means the fact that he rose up from the grave bodily, that for the relational death that you're experiencing, there can be life again? If he can get up out of a grave, so can your relationship, so can your circumstance be made alive again. There is hope. This is what the real presence of Jesus does for his disciples through the centuries. There is life out of death. This is part of the good news of Easter. The Spirit moving in and through us to bring dead things back to life. To bring dead circumstances. Dead ends. Even in us. Even in you. This is part of the difference that it makes, that his presence drives the dark of doubt and hopelessness away, even if if it's just a little bit. It begins to drive the dark out and replace it with light and life. So that's the first thing he gives us is his real presence. And next, he gives us his real understanding. Let's look at verse 44 together. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The risen Jesus provides the most important answer to the most important question about the most important book in all the world. He tells us what the the book that made our world, to borrow a phrase, is all about. The things that we take for granted, right? Like Patrick named them last week, I'll just name a few. This idea of equal rights. This idea of fairness, of justice. This idea that every person is worthy of dignity and honor. It actually comes from this book. It comes from the Bible. And this book that made our world, that we take for granted, Jesus comes and brings an understanding to help us know what this book is all about. You know, this book is not primarily about do's and don'ts. This this book is not primarily about us at all. Jesus says this book is primarily and ultimately about me. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ. It was either leading up to Jesus, foreshadowing him, promising that he would come, or it's about his life, his death, his ministry, the sending of the Spirit, or it's about looking back at who he is and the ramifications for our lives. It's all about Jesus. Now, I knew that Sunday school answer. Did anyone else know that one growing up in church? If you did, you knew the answer was always Jesus, right? I did. But it wasn't until I started uh, attending a PCA church in seminary that I realized that Jesus was not blowing smoke when he said the Bible is all about me. And in John 5, 39, he says a similar, similar thing. You search the scriptures because you think 
that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All the scriptures bearing witness about Jesus. One New Testament scholar, Michael Wilcock, he wrote this. Indeed, Jesus says that all these great New Testament matters are to be found written in the Old, Old Testament, not in proof texts and obscure corners, but as the very warp and woof of it. Christ and the gospel are the new hope promised in Genesis, the new life typified in Exodus, and the new law foreshadowed there and in the books that follow. They are the ideal which all the judges, all the kings, either felt towards or rebelled against. They put flesh on the insights of David. They bring to life the pattern of Jonah and fulfill the visions of Isaiah. The two testaments are one, and the theology, which is the sap of the church, can rise only from the roots, which run thus deep and wide through the whole Scripture. The whole Scripture. The crucified and risen Jesus says, my death and my resurrection, my sacrifice for your sins, and my victorious victory over death, my defeating of death itself, are the crux of God's story from Genesis onward. Now, something that I hear uh, when I meet with with many of you um, is this sort of universal struggle to read the Bible. And by the way, the Bible is big, 66 books. There are so many genres represented in the scriptures. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's prophecy. What do we do with apocalyptic? My goodness, there's narrative. There's so much there. And so it makes sense to go, this is hard, okay? Like you're, you're not weird, you're not, you're, you're, you're not wrong to say the Bible can be very difficult to read at times. But do you realize that Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, wants to help you understand it. He wants to connect the dots in your life, going, how in the world do I make sense of this big story in the scriptures? The risen Jesus comes to his troubled disciples, his confused disciples, and say, it's all about me. He does that again. He does that again through the church on Sundays. We try to remind you every week what what all of life, let alone all of scripture, is about. But also, there's things like Bible studies. There's things like discipleship groups that you can be a part of in this church and also outside of the church that can help you understand. He has given us so many resources to help us understand what the Bible is all about. Let him teach you. Let him teach you. So so many times we are like Martha in Luke chapter 10, just a few chapters before this, where she's so busy. She's so busy with life. And it's in contradistinction to her sister, Mary, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, just sitting there, listening to him. In the mornings, are we so busy with life, and many of us are, that we can't listen to him? Or are we going to let the risen Savior come to us by his Spirit and say, let me teach you, let me help you understand what's really going on. It's all about me anyway. And so I want to offer this again. If you have questions about how do I make sense of Genesis, how do I make sense of Lamentations, reach out. We would love to help. But there are so many amazing resources for us. And there are so many people, amazing people, that are further along in their journey with Jesus than I am in this church that can help disciple you, to help you understand the beauty, to gain some understanding of the Scriptures. Because it is where our life 
is found. It is where the message of Jesus is found. So he gives us a real understanding, but after that, he gives us a real mission. The why, the why. I think we're all chasing today. So let me ask you a question. What in the world is the church for? What is this thing about? Why are we here? Why are we doing this 20 centuries later, gathering together as followers of Jesus? What should we be doing? There's so many questions relatedly. And I want to I just pose a quick idea. How we answer what the church is about should be different because Jesus is alive. If we believe Jesus was merely a metaphor, we would answer that question differently than if we believe that he is indeed alive and not in the tomb somewhere. Uh, There's an article in the Sermon Resources uh, this week that I want to recommend to you uh, to look at sometime this week. Uh, Her name is Kirsten Sanders, and she wrote an article for Christianity Today entitled, Why Church is the Wrong Question. Private devotion, community service, and entertainment aren't what the local congregation is for. This article is amazing. I had to read it a couple times to really let it sink in. It's it was really important. This is why I'm pulling it into this sermon, because I think she poses some really helpful questions for us in light of Easter. And she basically says this, that somewhere along the line, we as the American church started functioning as if God doesn't exist, and in particular, as if Jesus isn't alive. We can do the things, we can run the programs, we can have the gatherings, but the necessity of, of the resurrection isn't always there. And she's just pointing, putting a finger on saying, maybe that's where we went wrong. Maybe that's why, we, as we've been talking about recently, why the American church is in a period of maybe the largest decline in its history. Because we've been acting as if we can do church without the resurrection. We've been acting as if we can do church without the Holy Spirit. We can do the programs. We don't need a, we don't need a resurrected king. We just got to stay busy. We just got to do good stuff. But this article really hit me between the eyes. And I want to just read a few lines from her article. She writes this, When the church becomes preoccupied with defending itself to the world, it eventually becomes incoherent. The only way to be a church is to speak the peculiar language of peace, of forgiveness, of repentance, and resurrection. When we do not do our job, the church becomes understandable to the world, but loses its mission. It is no longer peculiar, even if it is now coherent to a culture that is anything but Christian. We need that friction, that impossible question of how church works, that puzzlement over what the church does, because what it does is often inconceivable to those outside it. The church matters because only there is the the truth about the world spoken because only there is the Lord proclaimed as king. If we function as if he is still in the grave, if we make decisions just sort of based on our own intuition, rather than this incredible idea, this incredible truth that Jesus is alive It's no wonder 
why the church is in such decline. Because we're not living like resurrection people. And people are so hungry for hope, are we not? Aren't people hungry to know that there's life out of death? We must function. We must plan. We must worship because he is alive. This risen king creates peculiar people with a peculiar mission. We see that in verse 47. Let's look there. And that forgive, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our why, then preaching the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is our what? The resurrection is our why, and preaching the forgiveness of sins, the repentance of sins for forgiveness, is our what? Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, this in 2023 is probably the hardest mission we have been given, we could have been given. Right? This idea of turning from ourselves, turning to God, not following our heart, needing help, needing to be forgiven, saying we are sinners. Come on, guys. This isn't sexy. This isn't an easy task. This is an impossible mission. Especially in our late modern age where everything revolves around it. Me, myself, and I. But this is the mission that Jesus has given to us to preach to the nations repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But maybe one of the other reasons why our church is in decline, the church is in decline in America, is because we often make it seem that repentance is what we're calling the world out there to do. And we have often neglected the repentance that we need to do in here and in here. But in reality, unless we repent, unless we humbly turn from our own self-absorption and be made alive in Jesus Christ, then all our neighbors will ever hear from us, the church, is condemnation, is judgment. But as Jesus said, he came into the world to save sinners, to save the world, not to condemn the world. A couple months ago, a, a few staff members uh, here at Grace, we went to hear uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle um, speak. Uh, uh, he gave a talk at Montreat uh, College up in Black Mountain, and he gave a talk called Transgender People, the Bible, and the Church. And he said this, we can get the Bible right, but we can get love wrong. It's not only what we believe, but how we believe it. And he, he talked at length about the damage that has been done to the trans community, the LGBTQ community, uh, by the church. And he said, we must remember that before we are anything else, all of us, all people, are made in the image of God and therefore are worthy of dignity and respect 
no matter what they do with their bodies, they are worthy. We are all worthy of dignity and respect because we are made in his image. We are made in the likeness of God. And even if we disagree with the lifestyle of that community or certain persons, he said this, that we must remember that it's the kindness of the Lord that brings all of us to repentance. It's not condemnation that brings us to repentance. It's the kindness of Jesus that brought any of you who follow Jesus today, it's because he is merciful. It's because he loves us. That's why you follow him. And why do we think it'll work the other way with other people not in this church, outside of these walls? In other words, the message that we carry to the world is not merely to repent of your sin, to turn to Jesus for your own forgiveness. It's also the message of repentance for forgiveness of our sins, for us to turn from our self-righteousness, for us to turn from our self-centeredness, from us to turn from all the idols that we follow, the good things that we've created into ultimate things. Duke Kwan said this, it's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly think they need Jesus more than you do. Lord, help us. We need Jesus' love and mercy as much as anybody else. And do we act like it? Do we speak like it? Do we tweet like it? The only reason our pride can be cured, our self-righteousness can be cured, is because Jesus, the God of the universe, humbled himself to take on our flesh and our bone and to take upon himself our sins on the cross. He died. The most humble king in the universe died for the most prideful people on the planet, oftentimes the church. Do you realize this is how we become humble? This is how we become kind because of the humility and kindness of our risen king. This is how we become people on mission when we ourselves are humbled, when we accept the path that we are all traveling towards Jesus together, walking towards him, needy of his grace, all of us. That's the path toward healing and reconciliation and renewal that the world is so longing for and that we are alone are able to give. But oftentimes we withhold in our pride. The resurrection of the real Jesus is our why. This message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is our what. And very quickly, the spirit is the power. He's the how for how we pull it off. Real power. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending you the promise of my father, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Uh, for the next 12 weeks or so, um, we are going to be preaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you come back. We're going to talk a lot more about him. And yes, we are very nervous about it <laughs> as preachers. Um, but it's good. You know, we've been uh, asking the church to pray, to be filled with the Holy Spirit for about 30 days. We did that. 
And we want to know more about who this person is that we want to be filled with. We want to keep in step with this person as a church. So we need to talk about him. And so I look forward to that. But I, I want to just say one kind of quick thing. I don't want to steal those 12 weeks thunder. But Jesus says that he's going to clothe his disciples with his power from on high. Clothe. And I, I want you to notice it's, it's very subtle, but it's very important. We don't clothe ourselves with his power. He clothes us. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. He clothes you with this power to share this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins found only in Jesus, the, the message that we all of, all of us need, the whole world needs. He is the power to do that impossible mission. It's the same word in Luke 15 when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. And you know the story? It's about a son who had returned home after wasting his inheritance and dishonoring the, father's, the father and the family and had just kind of wrecked his whole life. And you know the story that the, the father sees the son returning home saying, I'm just going to be a slave of the father. And he sees his son and he runs towards him and instead of shaming him, instead of judging him, he embraces him and he throws his best robe on him. He clothes him with his best robe. I love this picture. I love the picture of the father clothing the son with his own robe. Now the righteousness that the, the really the self-righteousness with which the church often acts, this picture reminds us that it's not our self-righteousness that the world needs. The world needs his righteousness. And he clothes us in that righteousness in the gospel. When we place our faith in him, he says, I and all that I have done will clothe you. And I am going to give you my righteousness. Here it is. I'm going to exchange your sin, your self-obsession with humility. Let me clothe you with my righteousness. I took your sin. Let me put this on you. But it's the same verb in Luke 24 when he says, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. You see, friends, it's his mission. It's his spirit. It's his message. It's his world. He gives us exactly what we need and more to do it together, to live for him to love the world back to life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come in your name, the name of the risen King. We don't come because we're good. We, we don't come because we're nice religious folks many of us, we come because you love us even though we don't deserve it. We come because while we were still sinners, you died for us. 
And you took our record of sin and you nailed it to the cross with its legal demands, the punishment that we deserve, you absorbed in yourself. And now, by faith, you wrap your righteousness around us. This is why we follow you. This is why we serve you. This is why we serve and love our neighbors. Because we can't help it when we've been loved like this. And Lord, the world is in need of this kind of love. We haven't shown it very well, especially to certain communities in our world. Forgive us, Lord. Challenge us, convict us where we need to be convicted of our sin, of our pride. Humble us because you are humble. Humbled enough to take on our flesh, our weakness, and to take up your sin upon yourself on the cross. Humble us, Lord. And Jesus, thank you that you didn't end there. You didn't stop there. When you ascended to take your rightful place on the throne, you sent your spirit to clothe us with power from on high, the power to do this impossible mission, to love the world back to life. And so, Holy Spirit, come. As we sing, come. As we go, come that we would love like you loved us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus.